It is beginning to look a lot like Christmas, isn't it? That's a good thing. I hope, I hope that uh, we will have a, a season of celebrating as we begin. Today is the first day of Advent, um, and it is a, it's the four Sundays prior to the celebration of Christ's birth, and it's a season of reflection. Uh, some churches follow a really structured calendar for Advent season. Others, um, like ourselves, we will make application to it or note of it from time to time. But um, I hope and pray that as a church over these next few weeks, that we'll really be intentional about um, seizing the moment to speak of Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers. Um, this morning, I'd invite you to John chapter 14. We are going to uh, take a, a big swing at getting through 31 verses this morning. And we're going to do that by more of a, a skipping of a rock kind of idea rather than a, a deep dive of walking through it all. And so um, I don't know if you guys like Oreos or not. Yeah, I maybe the best cookie ever invented. I don't know. Now, just imagine you've got yourself a brand new package of double stuffed Oreos and you have a nice tall glass of milk. And you're getting ready to sit down and either read a book that you've been longing to get to, or it's to watch your favorite team play, um, or a, a great movie. Whatever it is you do to relax. Now, you've got a decision to make. It's a very important choice. I'm not talking about twisting the top off and leak, licking the middle out. That's no real Oreo eater does that, I'm just saying. The real decision is in this brand new package of double-stuffed Oreos, is how many of them are you going to eat? That's the real question. That's the tension. I mean, there's a lot of sweetness in that package that's just calling your name. And you know, you could just sit there and just keep going and going and going, and then there's a whole sleeve gone. Well, there's two more there. And then you go and go and go. Some of you are nodding your heads. You've been down this road before. That's kind of the tension that I feel today as we look at John 14, because there's so much in this passage of real spiritual good. And um, the question is, how much of it can we absorb and meditate together on in our time this morning? We're not going to be able to eat it all. We're not going to be able to enjoy it all. We're going to have to leave some for later. And so that's our approach this morning. But we're going to work through this passage in a faithful way, in a way in which I hope and pray will bring real spiritual benefit to each and every one of us. My appeal this morning to you from the text is simply this. And it's a simple, straightforward message because I think Jesus in many ways is, is leading us in this. It's to believe in Jesus. Uh, we're approaching a Christmas season and we are somewhat, even in our society, there are still remnants of Christianity in our culture. So you might see a cross, uh, the whole origination of Christmas trees and decorations. These are all uh, the accoutrements of Christianity on some form. Or they were adopted and appropriated and repurposed in Christianity. The, the idea of a light that shines in darkness, as we just sang, is the hope of the gospel. 
the, the giving of gifts is a carryover of the greatest gift that was ever given. And so we, we can get easily very accustomed to this idea that Jesus is the reason for the season. But I want to move us a little bit deeper this morning and just to urge you to, if you believe in Jesus, to reaffirm your faith in him. And if you're here this morning as a guest and you don't believe in Jesus, then I want to urge you to believe in Jesus. This morning, let's, let's just follow along from John chapter 14. as I, I'm going to read through the whole passage, and then we're going to make some observations from it. Please hear God's word. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but my Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming." He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And this ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write these truths upon all our hearts. I want us to see that uh, what chapter 14 is speaking of is connected to chapter 13. We're in the upper room. This is the last night of Jesus's life before he goes to the cross. It is a time of a Jewish feast and celebration of the Passover. And Jesus has been instructing his disciples that his time with them will be short. In fact, in chapter 13, he has washed their feet doing so to teach them that servant leadership is going to be required from them and that they are to humble themselves and follow the example of their master in doing the very things that are required of a servant. He then tells them that one of them is going to betray him, and he does show us, the reader, who that is. It's Judas Iscariot. Jesus gives him a piece of bread after he had dipped it in the wine, and he told him, go and do what you're going to do quickly. Judas left, all the other disciples are a little bit lost and thinking he's going to go pay the tab for their room and the accommodations and the food. Now Jesus pivots from that moment and then he speaks again that he's going to leave and it's the end of chapter 13 where we see Peter, Simon Peter, one of the three closest associates of Jesus who says to him, where are you going? I'll go with you. Don't leave us alone. I'll go even to death. And Jesus is like, really? Really? Peter, let me tell you something. Um, You're going to have a crisis in your faith. Peter doesn't know this, but just in a few hours, he's going to deny his Lord three times. And it's right after saying that, that Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. The, the passage, we have these divisions that we call chapters and verses, but in truth, chapter 13 and 14 are one conversation. It's the first of two talks that Jesus gives on this last night. The end of chapter 14, we read it, right? Rise and let us go from here. Thank you for not leaving. That was not, <laughs> that was not a benediction. But 
that seems to be a pivot point, and yet Jesus, he has just said, I have no much, I don't have much time to talk with you further about these things. Then he says, rise, let us go. And then there's a lot of talking that takes place in chapter 15 and 16 and 17. And so what's going on? Maybe they're leaving the room and they're walking through the dark city on their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. I think that's a, that's a logical conclusion. In any event, chapters 13 and 14 full, uh, form one unit. And Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's comforting them. Why are they troubled? Why? Well, Jesus has just shocked them when he announced one of them would betray him. And then later, he says that Peter is going to deny him three times. And so the question is, what will the others do? When their faith is tested, will they show faith and solidarity with Christ? Or would they also deny him? Perhaps more upsetting wasn't just hearing of these, a betrayer and Peter's denials, but it's the knowledge that Jesus is going to a place that they can't follow him. And this is just a week, less than a week, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so all these thousands and thousands of people have been crushing into the entrance of the gate of the city to see the Messiah who many believe will be a political ruler, who will somehow create an army that will throw off Rome. He will do what the Maccabeans had done a hundred and some years before him. And he will, he will actually go back to what David had done and rule his people and establish Israel's glory days yet again. And so to hear in the pinnacle of all that excitement, with all that kind of anticipation, to hear that Jesus is going somewhere they cannot follow, the disciples are troubled by that. And it's so amazing to me. It's so easy to lose sight of this. But as we saw last week in chapter 13, that the suffering servant who was troubled by his coming death What do we see in chapter 14? But he is comforting the very disciples who will all leave him. I mean, think about that. Jesus knows exactly what is going to be his fate in a few hours. He knows the physical pain he's going to suffer, which was severe. But he also knows the spiritual darkness that he will experience for the very first time as our sin separates him from his father. And yet, he is comforting the disciples. What does this show us about the heart of Christ? He has an affection for you and I. In our weakened state, in our narrow focus. Hey, Jesus, as we read here in verse 20, uh, what is it, 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. And he kind of rebukes them. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. But they've been focused on their situation and their circumstances. You're leaving us behind. We won't get to participate in the kingdom. We don't want to be stuck here without you. And they're kind of sucking their thumbs, as it were, pouting, maybe, a little bit about how hard life is going to be for them with Jesus gone. And he's like, guys, you're missing it. This is a good thing. I'm going to go to the Father. And if you were tracking with me, you would have been celebrating this. 
And so all this in this first verse, and as we look at the rest of the chapter, I want us to see that Jesus makes several statements that his departure, in fact, is not a bad thing, but it is going to bring blessings for the disciples and himself. So that's kind of the overall idea of this passage, that Jesus must leave, but don't look at his departure as a bad thing. His departure is going to bring many blessings for the disciples. Let's look at those. First, we see that Jesus secures a place for them in verses 2 through 4. He's telling them, I'm going to my father's house. It has many rooms. I'm not playing tricks with you guys. If I'm going there, understand the reason why I'm preparing a place for you is because I'm going to come back, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to take you to that place. And we're going to be together. He's got to go in order to do this. It's also a prophetic declaration of Jesus that he is going to come again. Jerry mentioned that in his pastoral prayer. We sung of it already this morning. In discovery class, we talked about the second coming of Christ, that he is physically and suddenly going to appear, and he is going to gather his church together. He will judge the wicked and send them apart from him into everlasting torment, and he will bring together his people, and he will be their God and dwell with them forever. Jesus is foretelling that day. I will come again. I can't come again if I stay. He must prepare a place for them. And he assures them that it is a place that they will enjoy. Second, we see another way in which Jesus' departure will produce blessing. He tells them they know actually where he's going. In verse 4, you know the way I'm going and to where I'm going. Thomas is lost. Uh, I don't think so, Jesus. We don't really know where you're going in verse 5. So Jesus must remind them the way to where he is going is right in front of them. And I can't think of any clearer image than Jesus saying this about himself. That the way to eternity with the Father is me. I am the way. You see why I'm urging us to believe in Jesus? He is the way to salvation because he said it. And not only has he said it, but as we see from the text and from John's gospel, there's such a closeness in relationship between Jesus and the Father. To know one is to know the other. To see one is to see the other. To hear the Father's words is to hear Jesus' words and vice versa. There's a unity there. And so Jesus can literally point out the path you need to follow is following me. This goes back to chapter 13 in verses 33 and 36, where Peter is talking about, where are you going, Lord? Let us go with you. And Jesus is saying, follow me, and I will lead you. Access to where the Father lives only comes through Jesus. We see that in verses 5 and 6. And Jesus does tell them, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. Now, he's not rebuking them. He's just stating a fact. In fact, he pivots and says, from now on, you do know the Father, and you have seen him. Now, let me just say the, the obvious here. This is the height of arrogance, or it's true. There is no middle ground on what Jesus is saying here. I don't know how you could twist these words 
to be anything less than he's claiming divinity or he's absolutely insane. And if you are not a Christian, you have to wrestle with his claims and what he also did to back those claims up. The life he lived, the miracles that he performed, the power that he demonstrated in his own resurrection, which was testified to by many, many witnesses. I I don't think a myth would have led to a 2,000-year-old church tradition. Not in the face of persecution from, the, from Rome. Not in the face of persecution throughout various generations and seasons. And certainly, as we look around the corner, perhaps we as a church here in the USA should prepare ourselves for persecution. We will not die for a myth. We only die for what we believe to be true. So Jesus is saying To see me is to see the Father. And Philip asks, right? These three questions kind of form the framework. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, Jesus says, great question, Thomas. Let me tell you, I am the way. And you do know me. So you know that by faith in me, you believe in God. I want you to also believe in me. My death is going to throw you and your equilibrium off but I want you to trust me now. The words that are coming out of my mouth, understand I am doing exactly what the Father wants me to do. There is no accident here. There is no short-circuiting of God's plan to bring salvation. It's all working out according to God's plan. Jesus also tells them, as he speaks in verses 7 through 11, he reveals the Father to them. Right? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. And then Jesus has to then speak to him. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And let's rehearse some of these works. Jesus caused a man who was born blind to see. Jesus has turned water into wine. He's walked on the water. He has fed 5,000 from a sack lunch. He has done so many miracles. He has raised the dead in chapter 11 with Lazarus. This is outstanding. And so as you read this passage, as you hear these words, hear what Jesus is saying. Do you believe that he and the Father are one? Do you really believe That he is sent from God. Philip's question opens the way for this teaching on the intimacy between Jesus and the Father. They are so closely connected to each other. To see one is to see the other. And this has consequences for the prayer life of the disciples. And Jesus is going to bring some of them out here. And you notice all the language that he uses here. I, I, I was struck by this this week, just or last week, looking at this passage. 
how he repeatedly calls Yahweh, the Old Testament God who shook a mountain, who threw down hailstones from heaven to fight an enemy, this God who parted the Red Sea, who appeared as a cloud of fire at night to lead Israel in the wilderness, and then a cloud by day. This God who brought a plague upon his people, sent serpents, who struck them with disease and illnesses. And Jesus is calling that God his Father. All throughout John's Gospel. We see it in chapter 12 and here in chapter 14. And then as we looked back last week to chapter 13 and verse 33, Jesus called them little children. In chapter 14 and verse 2, he uses the language of a home. And thus, in verse 3, there's a family that's being formed. Do you see all the language of intimacy, not only between Jesus and the Father, but between Jesus and us? He promised in verse 18, not to leave them as orphans. Widows and orphans were the most vulnerable people in that society because no one provided for them. They were forced into begging or stealing. At the threat of risking their own lives, they were forced into prostitution in order to meet their physical needs. This was a culture of that day. To be an orphan was to be all alone in the world. I'm thankful that we have families in this church that are pursuing foster care and adoption. I'm thankful that some have been doing that for decades. This is a great reminder for us as Christians that the work that God is doing in this world to to make strangers, to bring them into his family, is a very tangible reality for the most vulnerable and afflicted in our society to bring little children, to bring young people into your home and care for them through the foster program. Hey, we support Black Hills Pregnancy Center, but there is South Dakota Kids Belong that we have given a harvest offering to last year, and there's literature in the Mission Cafe about them. I encourage you to see that God's adoption of us through Christ can also be a pattern for us in adopting and caring for the most vulnerable children in our communities. Jesus is going to return to bring them to himself and to the Father, he says in verse 3. He's defining family structures here. He's actually giving us house rules in a real way. Those who love the Son will be loved by the Father. And those who obey the Son uh, obey the Father. And there's a hierarchy to this new family. As we look at verses 21 through 23, there's, there's a structure there. Jesus says, Uh, that whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Throughout this passage, we see a pairing of thoughts between knowledge and belief, and between love and obedience. You believe. You know me believe in me. You believe in my Father, then believe in me. You hear me, and if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. He's telling the disciples that this relationship that he has with the Father, that he's introducing to them, is intended to change them as well. 
So then we have this question. Jesus is also preparing them for their post-Easter work of evangelism and discipleship. He's urging them to trust him and follow him. And he says in verses 15 through 21, it's this repetitive, loving me equals keeping my commandments. But here's another way in which we see Jesus preparing his disciples. It's to serve him through the power of the helper. Looking at verses 12 through 26, this big check, uh, section, uh, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. He tells us that the Holy Spirit is a gift from the Father. He describes him as a helper to be with us forever. He is the spirit of truth, verse 17 says. And the reason the world cannot receive him is because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is what we see taking place in the book of Acts. The Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church. They're able to speak in tongues. They're able to do these incredible signs and wonders that had a real um, eschatological, it had a real end-time signs and symbols for the Jewish people to show them that God's day of judgment had come. But when we are born again, we are given the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit, according to what Paul writes in Romans and 1 Corinthians. I think the question that is asked by Judas, notice John says, not Iscariot. That guy left the room uh, back in chapter 13 in verse 31. He's a traitor. This is a different guy who happens to share the same name. And he says, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? It's a fair question. It kind of reminds me of when Moses is asking God, show me your glory, right? He's in the wilderness. We're back in Exodus. And it's uh, chapter 30, mm, 33. And he says, show me your glory. And God says, no, nobody has seen my glory and survived. Nobody can do this. And he pleads with him, and he says, here's what I'll do. You go up to the rock, and I'm going to hide you in the cleft. And I'll walk by you, and I will cover you, and you'll be able to see me from behind. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now think of this in Judas's question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are we going to see your glory if you're gone? How are we going to know that you are who you say you are if you're not here? Jesus says simply, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You know, when you sin, you do something you know to be wrong, and there's this twinge in your heart and your mind. There's a guilt. There's like, ah, oh, I'm going to have to deal with that. I can't just bury that one and wait for it to go away. This is because the Spirit of Christ is in us. 
This is what it looks like when the Son and the Father take up residence in us. It's not like the Trinity is all packed together in your little heart. It's that the Spirit of God who represents the the wisdom and the will of the Father and the obedience of the Son and His righteousness, He is dwelling in each and every one of us, and He is the one who's provoking us to do right things and who is convicting us when we do the wrong things. And Jesus says here that we will come and make our home in Him, and whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me. Once again, Jesus is connecting himself to the Lord, to the Father. He tells the disciples all these blessings that they will receive as a result of his departure. There's a new home, and they will experience that home. There is the hope of a comforter, a helper who is coming, who will teach them and remind them of all the things that they need to do. Jesus has to go in order for himself to be glorified and his righteousness to be manifested. He also is returning to the Father. Jesus promises these troubled disciples, as we look at verse 27, peace. And maybe this is the only thing that we can hang on today. You're dealing with financial hardships. You're dealing with physical suffering. You're dealing with adult children who have fallen away from the faith. You yourself are wrestling with, do I believe? And will that faith inform my life in such a way that I want to follow Jesus? And Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, the world's peace is temporary. Kids, I'm just telling you, whatever Christmas presents you get, your parents sacrificed, your grandparents sacrificed, it's a small token of their love for you, and it's an even smaller token of God's grace in your life. And as excited as you may be about opening that present, it's only temporary. But the peace that God can give through Christ will carry you for all eternity. It'll carry you through cancer. It'll carry you through the loss of a spouse. It'll carry you through the loss of a child. It'll carry you through the loss of a marriage. It'll carry you through the betrayal of a spouse. It'll carry you through economic hardships The peace that Jesus promises is a peace that is not like the world's. It's an enduring peace. And it can simply mean that Jesus' presence will be with them. He will be a benefit to them. He will be mediating for them. He tells them in verse 28, You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come again to you. And he says, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you should be happy for me, but it also means that Jesus is going to a position where he can now mediate for his disciples, where he can advocate for them, sitting at the right hand of the Father when the enemy says, hey, they can't be yours, like we see in the story of Job in the Old Testament, where the sons of God present themselves before the Lord, and, they, and Joseph is like, or Job is, is brought as a case study. The enemy is an accuser of the brethren. He could, he could say, look at, look at this bum. He cannot be one of your children. And the, Jesus is there 
to advocate. No, my righteousness has paid for these sins. He is one with the Father through me. Jesus is telling them that his journey through the horrors of the cross is going to take him to the intimacy of the Father and to the glory that he had with the Lord before the world began. He will speak of that in chapter 17. As we look at these final verses in verses 29 through 31, we see that Jesus is once again one of the means by which his departure is a blessing is the fact that he's told them all this before it happened. He does not want them to be surprised. And so he is preparing the disciples for his departure. And in fact, what we read in verse 29, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Here's here's the point. When the disciples see Christ crucified, their faith will be tested. But when they see Christ risen, it's like the pain of childbirth, right? It almost kills mothers to give birth to children. And yet when they see that baby and they hold that baby, all that pain is gone. It's forgotten it's the, the trial is worth it for the treasure they're holding. And Jesus is saying, this is the reality of your faith. When it is fulfilled, then you will believe me with irrefutable faith, with an unshakable faith, even though you will all flee. And Peter, you will deny me. When that moment comes and the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples, it will be paradigm shifting. They will believe He says that Satan has no power over him in verse 30. In fact, all that Jesus has done is to show his love for the Father. And so we close with these thoughts. The fundamental challenge that Jesus is addressing is a lack of trust. He knows that with his fall, his death on the cross, the disciples are going to think they are all next. They're going to panic as followers of Jesus. Are we going to get caught up in this conspiracy? Is Rome going to seek us out or will it be the Jews? It's a lack of trust. Not just the fear of your own life, but there's also the understanding that didn't Jesus say all this good stuff was going to come about and now he's dead? Should we believe anything that he said? I mean, for a while, while he was here, he was miraculous. There's no doubt he could have been divine, but now he's dead. So Jesus is dealing with trust on two levels. The disciples trust in God, he says in verse 1. They also ought to trust in Jesus. And remember, John, John was there, right? He was in this room. So the three disciples and the three different questions that are raised weren't weren't for the benefit of John rehearsing these facts. They were for the benefit of John's audience. They raised questions and concerns. How can we know the way? How can we know the Father? And finally, what was Judas's question? How will you manifest yourself to us? That is the heart of this text for you and I. John is writing to Jews who need the gospel. 
Judaism isn't going to save them. Jesus will. And so he's making an argument here to trust in God and trust in Jesus. Jesus has proved himself to be God. Should we not then trust him like we do God? This comforted, this one who is troubled by his own impending suffering is providing comfort to his disciples. And so I just wonder this morning, is there a specific way perhaps that Jesus is working in your life, calling you to trust Him. I, I don't believe for a moment that the only time God works in our lives is from uh, 10.30 to noon on Sundays. So the stuff you've been dealing with this last week, maybe even this morning, the pressures that you're facing, what is it that God is calling you to trust Him with? Is it salvation? Is it to believe in Him as the only one who can deliver you from your sin? Is it to recognize that all of the choices that I've made come from a heart of unbelief, a heart of trust, a lack of trust, a rebellious spirit against God, a desire for autonomy and individualism and self-rule, and that's only hurt me and the people around me? But the Scriptures are calling for a submission to this holy God and a recognition of my guilt before Him and that the only bridge between my sinful state and God's holiness is Christ. And so we urge you, believe in Jesus. Or maybe, Christian, the challenge is that God is calling us to follow Jesus in some matter of obedience in our sanctification. You're a Christian and you... You need to be baptized. You're a Christian, but you haven't talked to anybody about the gospel. I mean, you're, you're scared. Well, we're all scared. I almost get sick every Sunday when I come up here. I get scared. I would rather sit where you all are. But maybe it's a matter that God is speaking to us about our sexual purity. Or our godly communication rather than coarse talking, cursing, and filthy communication. Maybe God's calling us to trust Him in the matter of our suffering or our finances. Right? A buck doesn't go as far as it used to. And so we want these things, but to give to missions, to give to the gospel work, to support the church, we don't want to do that. God calling us to trust Him in our work or maybe in our singleness as a widow or widower or someone who's not married or a divorcee. Or maybe it's in our marriage and our parenting. The only difference between believing in Jesus for your salvation and believing in Jesus for your sanctification is your circumstance. Here's what I mean by that. If we are an unbeliever, Jesus is calling us to to trust in him for salvation from the sin debt that we will have to pay someday. However, if we've trusted in Jesus for this salvation, then the particular area of faith has to be kept, the, the area that we're struggling with trusting God in has to be kept in perspective with the greater danger that he's already rescued us from. I know we're late in this moment, so I'm going to repeat this. Jesus has saved us from a fate worse than death. 
in eternal separation from God. Now, if his salvation can do that, and if faith in believing in him results in that gift of grace in eternal life, then how can we not trust him with our singleness, our marriage, our finances, our sickness, our struggles? R.C. Sproul wrote a hymn based off of Romans 8, 28, and verse 30. It says, How can it be this divine truth declared by God above that all things by His grand design work good for us by love? Called by our Lord in purposed ends, no tragedy shall win, no curse for those He calls His friends. He saved us. From our sins. And what shall we say to these great things of mysteries sublime that if He is for us, we can sing now and for all time? Christian, this is the reality. And the question is are we convinced that Jesus is God's Son sent to save the world? And if that is a truth that we are willing to embrace, then we need to put all our faith in Him. And remember this, it is so easy to love someone who first loved you, who gave himself. We're not asking you to love Jesus who is despicable and hard-hearted. He's the Grinch. No, he is the most wonderful person. He is the divine representation of the Father, equal in every part, the exact imprint of his nature. He is good and he loves you. So this is grace. He's offering joy and he's promising a certain salvation and eternal life. The question becomes, is following Christ worth the cost? Acting as he's promised, prompted us to. Following us where he's leading us. You see, our love for God will require this. An undying devotion to him. And our love for those who God loves also necessitates such obedience. Because to love God is to love those whom God loves. And thus, our joyful obedience to God will lead us to doing good to others. Christians and even those who are not believers. So how do we pray? How do we, how do we exercise this faith? that we've been talking about. How do we really believe in Jesus? We pray for God's Spirit to change our hearts. It's simply that. There's many prayers of confession, but let me just lead you in the, the general principle rather than the verbatim words. God, change my heart so that I love you and the things you love. And the Spirit of God will change our hearts and give us the power to obey. He will comfort. He will remind. He will prompt and direct. He will empower us to know how, where, when, and why. And then we can also rest in the knowledge that Christ's hold on us is far stronger than our hold on Him. You see, remember, he's sharing these words to disciples who will all flee. They will scatter like cockroaches. 
when he's arrested. And we are just like that. And God is giving us this message today so that when we do run from the faith, that his love will draw us back because he's already seen the end. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Lord, you are merciful. You are loving, patient, kind. You are completely adequate in every way to be a Savior who fully saves. And Lord, we know that you are also eager to nourish and build our faith. And so we pray simply that you would do so now through your Spirit and your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask if you would to stand with me and let us sing this song, Yet Not I, But Christ in me. And let us make this our prayer of thanksgiving, our prayer of praise, and a call to action, as it were. And if you would like to talk further about anything we've spoken of this morning, uh, I will be right out these doors close to the Christmas tree and be happy to talk with you afterwards.